Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program with the Commonwealth Club. I'm Buffy Wicks. I am a Senate member from Assembly District 15 in the beautiful East Bay, and I'll be moderating tonight's program. The program is part of the Commonwealth Club virtual series, which is a new thing for us, and we'd like to thank our members, donors, and supporters for making this and all of our programs possible. We are grateful for their support and hope others will follow their example to support the club during these very uncertain times. I am very excited today to be talking with my friend and fellow Obama alum, David Pluff. David served as the campaign manager for then-Senator Barack Obama's historic 2008 campaign before becoming a senior advisor to him in the White House in between 2011 and 2013. Following his public service, he moved here to the beautiful San Francisco Bay Area, working for Uber before joining the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. We're here today to discuss his new book, this one, and you should go buy it if you don't have it already. It's called A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, which is now a New York Times bestseller. This book is his guide for the 2020 voter on how to make a difference. He teaches liberal progressive voters like myself about what we can do every day from the comforts of our home, which is more important than ever, to ensure Donald Trump is not elected, re-elected rather, uh, in November. So if you are watching along with us tonight and have a question you'd like me to ask David, please put your questions in the text chat in YouTube, and I will be asking them later in the program. So let's get rid of the script now, David, and let's get real <laughs> excited to have you on the program today. So how the heck do we beat Donald Trump? Let's start with that. Well, this will be like a 17-hour session. Yeah. First of all, it's great to be with you if virtually. Uh, one of the highlights for me the last couple of years was actually going canvassing in the East Bay with Buffy during her first election, where she unsurprisingly ran just a terrific and inspiring race. Well, um, you know, the spirit, of, the spirit of my book to me is actually more important than the specifics. I, I hope there are specifics in there that, that people can use. Uh, I wrote it not for political veterans, but most importantly for people who weren't sure whether they could do anything in any campaign. Maybe they've given, they haven't volunteered. But I'd start there, which is um, if we all sit around and hope Joe Biden and his campaign run the perfect campaign, uh, Donald Trump's going to win no matter how good of a campaign they run. We can all make a difference. Joe Biden is getting vastly outspent. So if you in this economy can still give a little money, that's important. Um, if you can make phone calls and in, into battleground states and write postcards, um, social media is the battleground. So creating your own content, and I don't mean like a Hollywood movie, just take a video about an issue that inspires you, share content, respond to the lies. We all have to be in the game. Um, and so it's going to take everything because even though Trump's poll numbers are dropping and even though his approval numbers uh, are dropping and he trails a lot of governors by 30 or 40 points, he's never had a high ceiling from an electoral standpoint, he's always had a high base and uh, he's going to turn out his MAGA crew. Uh, they are as excited about beating him as Democrats. They're pretty dedicated about. to him. Yeah. yeah, they are. So so we better assume he's going to bring his vote out. And, you know, they this week have unleashed a just an absolute barrage of negative ads in the battleground states, TV, radio and digital media to try and define Joe Biden. Um, you know, he's a China puppet. Uh, he wants to cut Medicare and Social Security. He um, is has dementia. You know, he's too old for the job. All the things we know Trump is was going to do anyway pre-COVID, they're going to intensify. So how do we beat Trump? It's each and every one of us doing everything we can within our power uh, to, to make sure on election that we don't look back and think there could have been more that we could do. 
Um, and that's the most important thing, because right now Joe Biden has tailwinds. Buffy, as you know, in politics, when you're in a campaign, you often have headwinds and tailwinds, and you can have many different episodes throughout the entire campaign. It may be that the, the economy is so bad, uh, the health situation sadly doesn't improve uh, as, as much as we'd all like, and Donald Trump's just facing headwinds the whole time. You cannot count on that. Yeah. Um, and I still think this is going to be a close race in the battleground states. Because I'll just, last thing I'll say, Wisconsin, Trump won it with about a million four hundred five thousand votes in 2016. You know, my sense and in, in talking to people who really understand that state and the data, he's probably going to get one point six hundred thousand votes. It's a lot of votes. So Joe Biden's going to have to get one point six two five, one point six five zero. So um, that's what we have to keep in mind is what matters here is votes, not polls. And Donald Trump is going to get his vote out. I'd still much rather be Joe Biden than Donald Trump, because I think this race now suits Joe Biden much more so than it might have even three or four months ago. Uh, but this still is uh, he's like a caged animal, Donald Trump. We've never had someone like this. He goes beyond even Nixon. He's got a pathological desire to stay in office and that presidency gets more powerful every year and every term. So this is the person sitting in probably the most powerful chair the world has ever known who will do anything, say anything. Call in any favor uh, to stay in that office, and we better not underestimate him. Uh, and I know after 16, most people aren't going to make that mistake, but I have conversations with people uh, today who are overly confident, say Trump can't come back from this. So uh, it's on all of us to make sure we do everything we can, no matter what the polls say. Yeah, the the not uh, t- we can't take anything for granted is so true. You know, we've got to live in a constant state of like paranoia at all times, every single day, wishing now an election day. And do everything we everything we can, and go out of our comfort zones to do those things, right? But when you so when you wrote this book um, in late summer of 2019, what a different world that was, right? I mean, when you think about it, right? We didn't know who the Democratic nominee was going to be. Um, we didn't know how the impeachment proceedings were going to play out. COVID 19 was on no one's radar. Uh, obviously, I don't even think it existed at that point. Um, and now, obviously, our world's been turned upside down economically. I mean, there's so it. it it's a strange time to be alive with how much change is happening, I think, electorally and politically and culturally um, in this country. Um, has you, Have your views changed or evolved since you wrote the book, or does your basic premise still stay the same? It's a great question. It stays the same. I did mention in there, there's a lot we don't know, you know, what state little of the economy. You know, will, you said that. Will there, I said, will there be a pandemic? So little <laughs> did I know. So, no, the core. So uh, I have a chapter on canvassing. Um, that chapter may be useful uh, in the fall, but it may not be. But most everything I talked about are things people can do from home, using your phones, using your computer, using, um, uh, you know, your creativity. Um, you know, I'm anxious for the Joe Biden campaign to ask all of us to start making calls and writing postcards to registration and turnout and persuasion targets in battleground states. But no, this is going to be a close race. Donald Trump's got the advantages every incumbent has. Um, uh, there's more people than we need uh, that would support an alternative to Trump. But we have a tougher job on executing. We always do yeah. uh, to make sure that materializes and vote. Um, but why, why is that that we always do? Well, so here's the thing with battleground states. Every battleground state um, has more conservative voters than liberals. So we start there and Republicans more reliably get their turnout. So those two pieces, as you remember, well, yeah. puts them closer to the 50 yard line than we are. That's just a fact. I think a lot of times, particularly when we're winning the national popular vote in four of the five last elections, people underestimated how hard it is for a Democrat to get the 270. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did it twice, as you know, with Barack Obama, but it was really hard. So um, 
you know, we just have a lot of infrequent voters, first time voters, voters who might have lapsed. Um, and so um, and that's, by the way, where vote by mail, as you know, having run these programs before is so important. Um, now, of course, I think it's it's. I don't think it benefits one part or the other because Republicans in a lot of states have been doing this really well for a long time. But when you have early voter vote by mail, it's a chance to get an infrequent voters vote in the bank because they're the folks who don't have voting history. If something happens on election day, they weren't, um, you know, uh, planning for it. You might lose the vote. So that's why it's harder. So I know we're going to enter this election with enough people, um, registered to vote who, if everybody voted, you know, Donald Trump would not win, but that's not the election. And I cannot, you know, there's polling though. So as much as Trump right now has fallen behind Biden by a few points, when you ask the question of whose side is more intense, Trump still has a very decided advantage. And as you know, in both Obama campaigns, that was always incredibly important to us because it results not just in voting, but in volunteerism and activism and all the things that fuel a campaign. So that's why I think the Joe Biden campaign has a lot of work to do, uh, because you want to see those enthusiasm levels getting somewhat balanced. Um, Well, and you talk about the vote by mail and early vote, and we were so methodical in 2008 and 2012 of investing significant resources and time, months and months and months of campaigning, building out organizing infrastructure, you know, having a massive voter protection campaign built out. There's so much that I, I don't know if people understand how much actually goes into that and to really chase all of those ballots down. Because what you're trying to do there is actually change the makeup of the electorate, right? You're, you're really putting an emphasis on that. And that's where I wanted to pivot a little bit. You talked about voter registration as being such a critical component to this. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Well, as you know, I mean, in both Obama campaigns, we ended up targeting states that most people in the political expert world thought we were crazy to target. Uh, so a state like Florida, if you remember 2012, uh, the news media stopped polling Florida. They said Romney's won Florida. It's over. Our own polls weren't that good in Florida. But what you have to look at is who's actually going to turn out on election day and how can you affect that? And so when we looked at a state like Florida, it's the best example, I think. If you registered several hundred thousand people, uh, you know, if we got our persuasion numbers up a little bit in the Tampa Orlando suburbs, if we held Romney's uh, vote total in the panhandle down a little bit, that doesn't show up in a poll necessarily, but you put all that together and that's how you get to a win number. So voter registration, particularly in states like Arizona, Florida, uh, North Carolina, we won't win them with enough registration over the next three to four months. Uh, it's going to be important in, in, in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan too. Uh, but those other states, uh, it's, it's absolutely a requirement to do that. And so, you know, that's where if the campaign asks us all, you say, what, what, what can I do in Pennsylvania from California? Well, you know, social media knows no lines, so you can do a lot there. But, you know, you calling someone, ask them to register to vote, can make them register to vote. You know, most of the people you call won't answer. Most of the people you call may not want to talk. But we just have to understand that even if you call for three hours, and you talk to three people. If enough people do that, that's how you win the election. And they'll be interested that someone from the Bay Area is calling into Philly. Why are you calling? You know, because I've got an eight-year-old and, you know, I care about this issue. And so um, human conversation is so important because the people that – or at risk of not registering or not turning out and voting are by definition not political creatures. They're really fraught about whether to vote at all. And so, you know, they're, to have a human just, conversation is important. They, they're just, they're, some of them just feel like, does it matter? You know, does it matter? Yeah. And so you have to really kind of make the case, right? And that human to human contact is going to be so important and, and different in today's sort of day and age, which we'll get to in a second. But before we dive into any more questions, I want to get a little bit of uh, more of the lay of the land. Um, 
Can you tell us about kind of what we know and what we don't know headed into the general election in terms of the electorate? Well, in terms of the electorate, so I think the things we know, Trump's going to, I think, maximize his turnout. You know, he won in 16 with kind of a ramshackle, underfunded campaign. He doesn't have that now. Uh, he'll have the best funded campaign in, in the history of the world um, and great digital and data sophistication. Uh, and they've already spent a lot of time over the last three years because um, he's been running for re-election since his inauguration day, trying to register new voters who look just like his MAGA base and find those that didn't turn out and get them to turn out. So he's going to have great turnout. Two, uh, the suburban um, strength the Democratic Party showed in 18 looks to be in place again, and that'll be really important for Joe Biden to maximize that. Two, um, thir- number three, uh, there's a lot of discussion about how uh, in rural areas and exurban areas, there were big swings from Trump to Obama, 12 to 16, and there were. I'll get to those in a minute. But there was equally important swings in blue-collar areas that tend to be larger that have more vote. So Erie County, Pennsylvania is the best example. Democrats hadn't lost that in decades. Obama won it by, I think we won it by 16 or 18 points, uh, and Trump won it by four. That's a massive swing in a big county. Joe Biden is showing the ability to get some of that vote back. Um and uh, we do need to cut into Trump's rural and exurban margins. Mm-hmm. We're not going to cut into them by much because he's got a lot of strength there. But if you could turn a, a small county in Wisconsin, you lost 70 to 30 uh, into losing it by 65, 35, um, you know, that adds up. Uh, the, and then I think the other thing we know is, um, you know, turning out and maximizing uh, the, the, the both the vote share and the turnout of voters under 30 is going to be super hard. It's super, it was super hard for Barack Obama. It's yeah. going to be even harder for Joe Biden. And that's where so much of the work has to go. But I think at the end of the day, there are a bunch of voters out there and there's more, you know, most people in the country know how they're voting well north of 90%. In some elections, you might only have three to 4% that's actually swing voters. I think it's going to be higher this year, six, eight, nine. And I think for, for those people, um, the way Trump's mishandled the coronavirus, the fact that we now are heading into either a severe recession or depression, uh, there was already a sense that maybe it's time to turn the page on Trump. All the tweeting, all the distraction, all the insults. So I think that that um, is a really important um, a trend that we need to have accelerated. And Joe Biden, whatever you say about Joe Biden, the fact is that he led the last recovery act. Now, right. most people who decide this election don't know it or don't remember it. So they have a massive job to fill in that to do his biography. Like they've got to get back to the first chapter of book and not skip ahead to their congressional plan in 2021 for economic recovery. Like there's a bunch of things people need to know about Joe Biden. But I think that the the, the contours of this election suit a Joe Biden pretty well versus Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, the one thing we don't know is in this environment, I think we building on 18 where we had the highest turnout since, um, you know, 1914 was where we going to have historic presidential year turnout. I think pre-coronavirus, you'd probably say yes. We don't know yet. Uh, and that could be incredibly important because if we don't get massive turnout, you may have one side who's getting better turnout than the other, and that's how you can lose or win an election. Totally. And what do you think in terms of the issues that are going to resonate most with voters as they head into the polls or vote by mail, <laughs> hopefully? Well, well, listen, I mean, obviously you've got voters who care deeply about climate change or about education or about uh, the deficit or about – um, healthcare, which is connected to, to the economy. But the, the central question for most swing voters, so a, a voter who's sitting there in Wisconsin who's not sure how they're going to vote, is who can I trust to dig the country out of this economic hole? That is the only question for them. 
Some of that maybe I lost my healthcare coverage. Some of that maybe I'm concerned about how my kids are learning. Some of it maybe I'm concerned about Medicare and Social Security for my parent. But at its core is that question. And that is the, the fight and the debate that Joe Biden has to win and has to win uh, dramatically. And it can't just be based on experience. It has to be who do I trust is going to fight for me? And the thing we weren't able to do in 16 was Donald Trump got away with saying, hey, I live on Park Avenue uh, in this ridiculously ugly gold-plated apartment. I actually have disdain for working people. Uh, I view the economy through the lens of the stock market and illegal deals and, you know, $1,000 dinners. But I'm going to fight for you. And he won that debate. And Joe Biden needs to win that debate. Uh, and, and I think he's got a great ability to do it. But if I'm in that campaign, that's the most important measure I'm looking about is who are you, who are you going to trust for fight for fight for people like you, uh, in terms of digging this out of this hole? And if Joe Biden's winning that by 10 or 15 points, I think he's almost certainly going to be the next president. If that debate is muddled or Trump's winning it narrowly, uh, Trump could win. And Trump does have a tendency or a stra- full on strategy to constant distraction constant bombs. And so I think then you get off your game uh, in terms of framing that narrative the way you want to, because it's like, boom, 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 right? Um, and obviously, the goal is always to be going on the offensive as a campaign. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you how you handle, from a message perspective, someone like Trump, who is just constantly throwing all these bombs every single day? I think it's the question, Buffy, from a, a tactical standpoint. So now there's there's a, a big chunk of the campaign you control, no matter what Trump does. Your advertising, your content, what they're asking all of us to share, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, talking points and rapid response material, all that, um, you know, we can all push out, and the campaign can spend money to reach voter targets. It's really the prosecution of the day to day on social media. And, you know, connected to the earned media where Trump is master dominating the playing field. Uh, you know, he's doing it with this ridiculous Obama gate and, you know, uh, today's release about those that, you know, uh, unmasked, uh, the Flynn information who were just doing their job. Um, you know, he attacked Fauci tonight, I think, because that's another chum in the water for people to chase. So. I think the Biden campaign has to control what they can control, which is, are we talking to the voters? We need to talk to about the thing we want to talk to at the right time on the right platform. I think prosecuting that day to day, I think you are going to have to be a little more aggressive. Now, Joe Biden should be authentic to who he is. You know, he's a person of compassion and empathy and civility, but his campaign needs to be pretty tough. And I think they need to put Trump on the defensive. So the standard for me is if Trump's doing a briefing, uh, you know, at the White House uh, or doing an interview and, you know, he's doing it, you know, do something ahead of that. So he get asked about it because it'll set him off because it's Biden who's launching the attack. So you have to figure that out. But we're seeing, I think the media, sadly, um, you know, is making some of the mistakes they did on the Hillary emails. They're just chasing these rabbit holes down. Now, they've gotten a little bit better um, and, and trying to couch what Trump's doing as distraction, to your point. But this is a challenge, and I don't think we figured it out because Trump, we've never seen somebody like this. I mean, he'll say anything. Mm-hmm. He'll lie about anything. He'll say something at noon and a completely different thing at three. And I think in his own mind, he squares the two. So, uh, you know, you're dealing with someone, it's almost like in boxing. It's like, do you prepare for a right-handed puncher or southpaw? You know, he can be both at the same time and it's really hard to prepare for. Um, so, um, but I'd like to see them be very, very aggressive and try and put Trump on the defensive. Um, and use the amazing stable of surrogates that he has at his disposal, yeah. both in politics and out of politics, to do that, too. So can you explain to me the person who voted for Barack Obama 
twice, maybe, and then voted for Donald Trump? Well, there's more of them than I think any of us realized, right? So um, now there's other swing voters. There's first-time voters. There's suburban voters that actually might have been with Trump in 16, went Democrat in 18, and are a huge target for us right now. Um, But there are the Trump-Obama voters. And I think at the end of the day, uh, Obama was changing eight and 12, even though he was an incumbent. um, You know, we kind of painted Romney as a candidate of the past and somebody, if you're a working person, you cannot trust. And so even in a tough economy, voters said, you know what, I'm sticking with Obama because I think he'll fight for people like me. Trump won those two debates. He was the change candidate uh, in an election that turned out to be much more of a change election than it looked a month out. Uh, and he won that core economic argument about who can working people trust to fight for them, at least white working class voters. He, he wasn't successful with African-American uh, or Latino working class voters. So that's what the deal was. And I think there is a good chunk of those voters that are available to us. Again, a lot of them went back to Democrats in 18. Yeah. And I think they're available to us right now because we have to center this question on, you know, do you really want to do this for four more years? Like, that may seem obvious, like, well, of course, that's a question. He's an incumbent. But you've got to center people on that. You've yeah. got to think about that. Do you want to wake up with him uh, for another, you know, 1,280 days with all the tweeting and all the attacking, just not being ready for crisis? Right. Um, so uh, I think we can win that debate. But you've got to center those voters on that question. I also think Biden's background, his biography, he's known as kind of someone who fights for working people and union people. He's kind of an authentic um, alternative to Trump. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, I think Biden's got other challenges uh, in the electorate, but that's one where I think um, he should be able to to perform the way we need him to. Yeah. Well, I hope we figure that out and figure out how to yeah. talk to those folks while also still energizing our base and getting our base out there. And I think that often happens, this debate in, in presidential campaigns or in campaigns in general, where you're like, you turn out the base or do you persuade voters? And it's like both ands, right? We have to do both of those things effectively uh, in, order, in order to win. Um, okay, so I want to talk a little about social media. Um, and I remember, by the way, on the 2008 campaign, uh, we sent five tweets, which is hysterical. <laughs> when you yeah. think about like, just was such a different world back then, right? In terms of how we used online tools. There's also all these, all these great online organizing tools that exist today, which obviously we're gonna have to use more of. But um, why is social media so important right now, um, especially in terms of this sort of COVID-19 space? And how can we use it effectively? Sometimes it feels like, frankly, a toilet bowl. Like every time you get on social media, you're getting these like Twitter fights with bots and it can feel like difficult to deal with. How do we kind of use it in an authentic way to communicate, but not get so drugged down to these like rabbit holes of conversations that just like feel like we're going to a hole towards nothing? It's a tough question because in the book, um, I really encourage people to get in the social media fight, um, which I know a lot of people don't want to do. And I understand that. But if you've gotten rid of your social media accounts, you need to reestablish them. And if you want to get rid of them after the election, you can do that. (laughs) So first of all, you know, in 2008, Barack Obama was the first Internet uh, candidate. Now, that was website. You know, we did build our own social uh, uh, networking and organizing tools. But the Internet was the main driver. By 2012, the internet was still huge, but Facebook had become more prominent uh, in a lot of voters' lives, uh, as did YouTube. By 16, it became the Facebook election, uh, with YouTube still being important. Now, I think the progressive movement generally uh, under uh, invests in YouTube. This is where the right has huge advantage on YouTube, uh, not and not just candidates. Prager University, um, you know, the Epoch Times, all sorts of local organizations that just drive content. 
But this year, I think, you know, Facebook is still dominant. Instagram's become more important. Um, TikTok and Snapchat have become more important uh, for younger voters. YouTube remains important. And that's where, whether you're, you know, 80 or 18, a lot of people are spending time. And that's how they get information. They mm-hmm. consume it. They share it. So we have to understand that that is the battlefront. Um, our phones are the main weaponry in this political campaign of 2020. And so for us, I think we just got to put blinders on. No, it can be ugly. You're not sure if it makes sense. Like you see a good clip from a Biden interview, share it. You see a good interview, Biden did share it. Uh, you see a good uh, climate change plan he sent out, share it. You see AOC give a good speech about Biden and climate change, share it. It can't just be negative. But if, and if we see, you know, infographics about what a disaster Trump's been, a great video like the Lincoln Project put out a great video last week called Morning in America that kind of is the flip to the Reagan a famous Reagan ad of 84, morning in America with no you. Share that. Um, you see a lie that your uncle puts out, you know, fight back. And that, that's where maybe you, you don't get into an extended back and forth, but say, you know, Uncle Jared, that's just not true. Here's the facts. Now, you're not going to convince your Uncle Jared. And maybe you convince nobody in your own social network. But I tell you what, other people will see what you did and model that and say, well, if Buffy can do it, I can do it. So if you just got to have that faith that it, it matters, it's hard to measure. Uh, you're going to get your, your aunt Ivanka saying, you know, you're such a liberal socialist tool. Like, just don't worry about that. She's going to say that. But, but, you know, you can't count on the distribution because they have Trump and all his money, but they have Fox, they have Sinclair, they have Breitbart, they have the Epoch Times, they have Prager, they have talk radio, and they all sing off the same hymnal and they have enormous reach. Uh, we don't have that. Okay. Mm-hmm. We have us. And if we don't step into the breach, uh, it's not going to get done. So put on the hazmat suit. It can be unpleasant some days. But, you know, this is no different than, you know, John Kennedy had to master TV in 1960. We had to master the Internet in 2008 and, and a lot of offline organizing. All of us have to just get in the fight here. Um, and this is a place where Trump's sophistication, um, you know, I think Biden can catch up. But, you know, they are oriented to social media. They've had this plan for three years. They've been doing an enormous amount of testing. So uh, we have to catch up, and we can't just count on Joe Biden and his campaign to do that as, as good a job as I hope they do. We all have to get in the fight. Yeah. Okay, fine. We will get in the fight. No, we're in. We're in. We're all in. Um, okay, so you wrote in the book, uh, quote, there's no substitute for person-to-person contact at the doors. Given our new COVID-19 reality, uh, when we'll obviously we'll see where it is in the fall, but you know, what, how do we, what's the substitute now for that? Is it social media or are there other ways that we can engage? And I, of course, I have a lot of thoughts on this as well with my organizing background, but I want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> well, I'll be brief because then I want to hear what you have to say. Well, we don't know yet. I mean, there may be door knocking nowhere in the fall. There may be door knocking everywhere. There may be door knocking in certain parts of some states and not in others. And even if there is, we're not sure who's willing to do it, who's willing to answer the door. So there's a lot we don't know. Um, so, uh, phone calls are not the same, but they're still away. Postcards can be very effective, particularly to people that, um, you know, you're trying, you're worried they may not turn out, you know, they're registered and the campaign thinks they may not vote. Those can matter. Writing postcards to precinct captains who are working their tail off in Wisconsin from California and say, thank you, Buffy, for what you're doing in Eau Claire. That can be super motivating. Social media, uh, can be important. And, And before you talk about working off lists, the most important thing to do is take care of your own business. So yeah. your friends, your family, are they registered? Do they have their own plan for activism? You know, if you've got a sister in a battleground state, Arizona, Florida, say, are you going to be a precinct captain? You better have a good reason why you're not going to be. Like, yeah. 
you know, we all have dozens and dozens, some of us hundreds of people that we can reach out to. Um, uh, and that can be very personal. So um, I don't think there is any substitute for this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe there will be video, uh, you know, work with swing voters, but I doubt it. So um, we're going to miss that a little bit, but we just got to compensate. Um, you know, Joe Biden can do a lot himself. He can do a lot of video. So think about that. Joe Biden might do like there's 200 swing voters uh, in Maricopa County in Arizona, and he does a video call of them, you know, October 10th, just to take their questions, the types of people that might come to an event. So there's a lot you can do, um, but we just don't know. So if you're the Biden campaign or any campaign, as you know, you have to plan for a bunch of different scenarios. It's hard enough to plan for one scenario, but you're going to have to plan for a bunch of scenarios. No in-person, some in-person. But what are your thoughts on this? Well, no, I mean, you're the star of the show tonight, but I, you know, uh, so I won't wax poetic for too long, but I still think the Biden campaign and campaigns need to hire organizers, but I think it's going to require a different style of organizer in terms of their capacity to do online stuff. But more importantly, the importance of hiring local organizers, because, you know, often in these presidential campaigns, we hire people from all over. They're deployed all over the country. They go, they walk into an office in Cleveland, Ohio, and they have an instant community of 50 volunteers and other organizers to kind of tap into. But we're not going to have that in the same way. And so hiring people who locally know the community, so they already have those lists, have those relationships. There's going to be, I think, a premium on that that's going to have to be really, really important. And then I think it's important to hire them because this could switch. And we could actually do in-person stuff if we do it carefully. And we can still do door hangers and other things like that. But I think there's still going to have to be a premium put on the organizing piece because it's going to be critical. But it has to be strong local validators as well. I think they can can kind of speak to their values as it pertains to to Biden. Well, it's a great point. And, you know, there's unfortunately a lot of people now who are going to be looking for work. So the pool of people that might be willing to be an organizer um, you know, is going to be pretty large in a lot of these communities. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about how to build a field program, the office is such an important piece of that. And we were notorious for that on the, on both Obama campaigns. We had thousands of offices across the country. Um, thanks to John Carson and you and others who were like, let's put offices in there. And there's an intangible energy that comes from that. Do you think that can be replicated online? Um, I think it can mostly be not totally. I think we should be clear about that. You know? No, but you know, if you're in a County in, in uh, Wisconsin or Florida and you get, you know, uh, you know, the 25 or 30, uh, you know, a group of 25 or 30, which may be two or three organizers from the campaign, the volunteer leadership, you know, you're doing video calls like this at the end of each day. Like, I, I think there are ways to do it. Um, um, not the same effect, right? But uh, that is actually, when you're talking about a, a, a manageable number like that, so so if you're a local organizer and you've got 150 volunteers, you know, once a week you ask everybody to join a video call, not everybody will, but it's a, in fact, you may get better turnout for that than you might in the campaign office. Sure. So I think there's ways to, to do that. I think when you get, whole, you know, kind of outside of, of retail to wholesale um, uh, with, you know, millions and millions of voters, that's where I think the challenge gets a little more complicated. Yeah. So one of the things um, you talk about is this, um, quote, um, virtuous cycle of campaign politics. And this is sort of the interplay between the candidate inspiring and energizing volunteers and then the energy then that comes back that actually inspires and energizes the candidate and the, and the staff. Um, what inspired that term? Do you have any kind of anecdotal stories that kind of like crystallize that for you? Well, you're the can- you've been a candidate, a successful one, so you can speak to this much better than I can. No, I mean, you know. Well, just, you know, in the Obama campaigns, and I actually write about this in the book, but uh, in 2012, for those of you uh, who remember this, uh, I'm sorry for this bad memory, but 
you know, we had an absolutely disastrous first debate against Mitt Romney. Um, you know, we didn't think it fundamentally altered the structure of the race, but polls tightened. And I think most of the progressive media establishment thought we had given away the presidency, right? Uh, we knew that wasn't the case. We just knew we had to get back off the mat and have a good second debate. Uh, we were in debate camp in Virginia and um, preparing for the second debate. And honestly, it wasn't going very well. And, um, uh, you know, president was struggling. We were struggling to give him the right advice. He went to a local field office just, you know, as a break from campaign uh, debate prep and, you know, brought some pizzas and, you know, made a few phone calls. And he came back from that uh, and said, you know, uh, that's the motivation I needed. You know, the truth is I don't want to, I want to do better in the second debate, but honestly, it's for them. I feel like I let them down and I see how hard they're working. Um, and, and those people in the office were like, you're going to get them next time. And some would joke and say, you better, you know, we, we covered the back, but we can't do it two times in a row. Like, you know, there was a, there was a relationship Barack Obama had with his folks. So he got inspiration from them. I mean, I will tell you that the, anytime he was like chewing me out about something, I wouldn't, it was generally, he was like in a Pennsylvania or in Wisconsin and a local organizer or a local, um, you know, volunteer would say, Hey, you know, we're not getting what we need. You, you, you know, I'm sure you got these uh, messages too. It's like, like he didn't even want to hear any, so just get them what they need. They're right. out here working their tail off. Yeah, yeah. Like, what is wrong with you people? Like, take care of them. So I think he got nourishment from them. When he had a bad day on the campaign, it's them he thought about. It wasn't the polls. It certainly wasn't any of us on staff. It was he felt he let people down. And I think so many people got involved in the Obama campaigns because they thought, he thought they were the most important people in the campaign. And he did. Yeah. Well, and that's and it, a magical it, it, thing. You can't, you can't like fabricate that. It either exists or it doesn't. And he never saw volunteers as a nice thing to have as a supplement to the campaign. They were, were the campaign. Yeah, they were essential. Yeah. And that, that culture starts from the very top. And that's the thing I think, I mean, and I just, I try to embody that in my race as well as best you can, right. Of, of trying to figure out how you can really create community around this effort how it's not just about you and your candidacy, but it's about the broader issues we're facing, how that all these people's personal stories are stitched together to a broader vision of a kind of a common dream that we have for what we can have, you know, but, and I did 239 house parties in my race. And I will tell you, it was exhausting. But every time I came out of those living rooms, after spending two hours with all these voters and volunteers, you get so energized from that, you know, and you're like, this is why I'm doing it. This is, this is the whole reason. Cause I got to tell you, man, Calling for money sucks, right? There's so much of the campaign part that's like not fun, but being with right. the is great. Right. So then how does Joe Biden, if we are doing things more virtually, how does he grapple with that same issue, right? If, if it's more of a disconnect over Zoom or whatever, like how do we, how do we create that same sense? Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. So, so let's look back at, um, I'm sure Hillary did some of this in 16 as well. I just don't have visibility in that, but with Obama in 12 and 8, whether it's Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, Joe, uh, Michelle Obama, Joe Biden, because he was their vice president, you know, they'd go into a state and as you know, uh, you know, yes, they'd give their speech, but they'd spend time with volunteers before or after the event. We do conference calls with volunteers. Um, uh, you know, both to motivate the volunteers and thank them, but also it was helpful for, you know, the Obamas and Joe Biden and Joe Biden. They got nourishment to what you just said. So I think Biden can do that using phones, using video calls like, you know, here we're, you know, and, and you know, truth is when you're not traveling, you do have more time. So he's got more time to say, OK, I'm going to do uh, a session with my West Palm Beach volunteer leaders and my, uh, you know, Eau Claire, Wisconsin volunteer leaders and my Tucson, Arizona volunteer leaders. 
and he'll get nourishment from that. They'll appreciate it. They'll yeah. get to ask him for stuff. The campaign might be slow getting them. So there's also like a customer service component to this. So I think that he has to do that. That And he's got more time now than he'll ever have, quite frankly, because he's not, you know, going through time zones and getting on a you know, plane every yeah. time a day. Yeah. So, um, one of the things I recall very vividly from 2008 was the end of the primary and, um, merging the Clinton and Obama worlds together. And I think we had to your credit, a lot of intentionality about how to do that to make sure we were bringing everyone together. It was a very contentious race, obviously. And I even remember I was the Missouri state director and we were very intentional about hiring Hillary Clinton people, like as our very senior staff. So it was Clinton and Obama people working very closely. And I remember my first training, we had like 300 organizers come in and I got up with Marlon Marshall, who was my deputy, who was a big Clinton person and said to everyone, if anyone on this campaign says a negative word about Hillary Clinton, you're fired immediately. And Marlon said, if anyone says anything about Barack Obama negatively on this campaign, you're fired immediately. And that, that was set at the, at, the, you know, at the highest levels in the States and in the campaign of we are one unified party now. And there was a lot of intentionality around that. Um, I think, there were challenges in 2016 to this effect, right? Which is where you saw these, um, some of the voters who went to Jill Stein or other places or just didn't show up because they were so passionate about Bernie. And I totally respect that passion, right? But obviously we have to come together again. How do you see that happening now? Um, and what's kind of your, your advice on that? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely essential. So, you know, that was one of the hardest things we did in a way because, you know, the Obama-Clinton primary is much tougher than you know, either of the last two primaries. It was tougher than, you know, 04. It was tougher than 2000. I mean, it was one of the toughest primaries in modern American history. Yeah. People forget. Um, and we had to turn on a dime. And that was the message, you know, uh, from Barack Obama and myself on down to state leadership like you. Like, we were just, we had no option. Because at that point, that race looked really close. <laughs> and it did till deep in the fall. Like, we couldn't afford to lose a single volunteer voter. So I think this will be uh, more effective, I think, than 16, because, you know, you've got Trump, number one. So he galvanizes everybody. We, we see, particularly with the pandemic, we just can't afford four more years. So Bernie Sanders has been great so far, and I expect he'll continue to do great campaigning for Joe Biden. I thought the platform committee announcements today having prominent Sanders supporters, including AOC, co-chair the Climate Task Force for the Democratic platform was great. But, you know, the Biden campaign has to continue to hire Sanders people. Mm-hmm. The Biden volunteers in states have to be welcoming, like you just said. Like, And, and you got to listen. Good organizing starts with listening. Yeah. So if a Bernie Sanders supporter says, you know, I'm just not sure yet, the Biden volunteer leader in a state can't say, well, it's, you know, we're running out of time. You have to say, well, talk to me about that. What are your concerns? Is there any way I can we can uh, alleviate them? And just know when you're ready, we're ready. We need you. We won't win without you. It's hard once you've won to kind of have a soft shoulder, but you just have to. Yeah. And to you said, this will be work that has to go on all the way through November. It doesn't happen magically. So it's on all of us uh, to, to, to make sure that we're doing our part to heal. Um, but then, and it's the principal's job uh, to really, and the campaign leadership's job, to make sure that each and every day smart things are happening. That's another way where Biden and his leadership, you know, if there was 300 like passionate Bernie Sanders organizers in Arizona, do a call with them. Right. Right. And you know, some of those questions won't be friendly and some of the commentary may be hostile. That's okay. Take it and say, all I know is Bernie and I share a lot of the same goals. 
Uh, yes, we, we may share uh, some of the different means to get there. Uh, but, you know, I won't win this election without Bernie. I'm so excited to have him. And I won't win it without you. So, you know, the victor needs to kind of go out of their way to bring people together. But I think the conditions of this race are more favorable towards that kind of unity than they were uh, in 16. Yeah. And I do think Bernie's done a really good job. And I hopefully we'll pull, pull all this together. So um, imagine you are uh, Biden's campaign manager. And I know you and I both know Biden's campaign manager very well. She's a good friend of both of ours. Um, and she's a badass. So I'm excited she's in that role. Um, yeah. When you look at the map, what does the map look like? You have your traditional battleground states, but what else do you think can and should be in play this cycle? Yeah, for those who don't know, Jen O'Malley Dillon is is uh, Joe Biden's campaign manager. She was uh, our deputy campaign manager in 12, ran battleground states in 08, has a long history in democratic politics. Um, and it is just tremendous. So, and I was talking to Jen about this last week. I mean, the exciting thing is, um, the battleground map is expanding a little bit for Joe Biden. So, uh, Florida looks like it should be absolutely competitive. And I'm glad about that. I, I didn't get, I talked to Democrats, uh, in California, outside of California, we're like, Florida's gone. We, you know, Gillum and Nelson didn't win in 18. I'm like, wait, wait, let's, let's take a minute here. They barely lost. Andrew Gillum was a great candidate, but he was under federal investigation. Bill Nelson, um, you know, a lot of voters in Florida didn't know who he was, uh, was not a, a incandescent political performer. And Rick Scott is a terrible person and governor, but he was well known. Hillary barely lost it. We barely won it. Florida's going to be close. So Florida, I think, is definitely in play. Uh, it's expensive. That's like a $100 million decision the Biden campaign needs to make. Uh, but I hope they firmly greenlight it. Arizona, uh, North Carolina, maybe Georgia. All those look – what's that? Arizona is very interesting this year, especially with Mark Kelly there. Right. I mean, there, there's a, a chance that – I think the way it lines up is the two states that are most likely to come back to us the most – uh, easily are Michigan and Pennsylvania. There'll be a fight, but that only puts us on the doorstep of 270. We have to win one more state. And you can't just say it needs to be Wisconsin. We've got to assume we've got equal chances to win Wisconsin, Arizona, Florida, maybe North Carolina. And the great news is Arizona looks not just competitive, but potentially winnable. So those right now, now, Trump's going to try and put Minnesota in play, New Hampshire in play, Nevada in play. The question I have on Minnesota is, we only won it by two and a half points in 2016. But what is the scenario where we win Wisconsin, win Michigan, win Pennsylvania, and lose Minnesota? So as you know, in a presidential campaign, it takes great fortitude to say, we're not going to go all in in a state like that. It's going to be really close. But at the end of the day, it's not a tipping point state, meaning a state that pushes you over 270 or right. under. So I think Biden should be the one playing offense here where I think a state like Arizona, a state like Florida, certainly a state like Wisconsin, are not just, you know, your 300th electoral vote or 320th. It could be the one to put you over the top. So, um, and, you know, the public polling suggests that in some of those states, you know, Biden's opened up a four or five point lead. I would caution everybody, though. I don't think in any of those states he's sitting at 51 or 52. So when you see polling, and most polls are bullshit, but let's say it's an accurate poll, and it's got Biden at 47, Trump at 44, Trump could still win under that scenario for sure, because, you know, you're going to win it at 48 and a half, 49 or 49 and a half. So that's what you really want to watch in a campaign is both from your own polling, but more importantly, your sense of your own data. Are you pushing past the 15 percent number so that you can win? But we should all be very excited that the battleground state map is not just going to be those three blue wall states. 
we're going to have the opportunity to really go after some of those other states. And you need margin for error in a presidential race. We know in 2004 with Kerry in Ohio, 2000 with Gore in Florida, the last thing you want on election night is to become have it come down to one state. No, You just can't be in that position. Right. And then also, if it comes down to one state and then governing after that is, all, is a lot more difficult as well, because there's not a clear mandate. Right. Yeah. So let me so let me say, listen, I think this race is going to not open up hugely for Joe Biden. I think he's got an advantage now. Maybe he holds on to it. Maybe he doesn't. But, you know, as you know, in a campaign, you better run as if you're losing and could lose. Number one. Number two, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm of a vintage where I'm enjoying this Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. Like he was my 20s, basically. Right. Uh, and that competitiveness that Jordan brought, that's what we need to see uh, from the Biden campaign and all of us, which is go in for the kill. OK, so make sure you win. If you're going to win anyway, win by as much as you can. That brings the Senate. That brings more House members. That brings more state legislative districts like, you know, in every election. I never treated it as we're up by three. That's great. It's like, why aren't we up by seven? Okay. Like you just have to go after it. Okay. And leave your opponent no quarter, uh, and, and, and punish them and take advantage of every opportunity. And right now this is an opportunity because Biden is looking like a good alternative. I think the party is on the way to unification, although it'll take more work. So this is the time, the old Midwestern expression, you got to make hay when the sun's shining. The sun is shining right now, not on our country, but on Joe Biden's campaign. And I think he's got to take full advantage of that now because you never know when that window closes. You know, you should be a campaign manager, David Fluff. No, I'm too, I, no, uh, they'd be like space cowboys, okay? Back in the day, like, am I any good about, hey, let's figure out how to use TikTok and Snapchat? No, not really. So, um, but that aggressiveness is so key. Um, and, uh, I do recall you re- reminded me of those t-shirts that we made on the last day, um, for the, in the 2008 campaign. I think it was the last day of the campaign or maybe it was the end of the primaries. I can't remember, but it said, let's go effing win this thing. Right. Something to that effect. So there was those, that aggressive nature that we love to see, but you're right. And that's how we have to treat it every single day. And, and it, that's the thing with these campaigns. It's like, Every day, did I do every single thing I could do today to maximize this campaign? Yes, because you run out of time. Every day, you, you just run out of time. And and that's the thing I think people don't totally appreciate is the the thing that you cannot control is time. It's a defined uh, thing that you have to deal with, and every day you have to move the ball forward because you're going to look back and you're going to say, "What did I just do with the last two years? Did I do everything I can?" You know, the night before election day, you don't want to feel like that. You right. Know? So. Right. You got me all fired up, David. Okay. Um, moving back to some questions and then we're going to switch to audience questions here in a second. Um, but I wanted you to talk a little about this idea of sort of actionable data and why actionable data is so important to campaigns. Well, you know, good data, you know, and, and what does data mean in a campaign? It would be, here's the people in a, a precinct or a district that aren't registered that we think based on a variety of data sets should be our supporters if we got them registered. Uh, here's somebody that we think, um, uh, is going to support us if they vote, but may not. So, you know, in most campaigns, you have a score, let's say zero to a hundred. So if, if let's say Buffy's a hundred, that means she's a hundred percent going to vote for our candidate and a hundred percent likely going to vote. We're not going to pay too much attention to Buffy. But if, what if Buffy had a support score of a hundred? Like we're getting Buffy's vote, but she's got a turnout score of 40. Like we think it's more likely than not, she may not vote. Well, that's who we're going to really talk to, send advertising to, try and have volunteers talk to, to encourage us to vote. Um, a swing voter, somebody who is 100 on the turnout score, but is a pure 50 on support. 
They are purely undecided. That's where so many of your persuasion dollars go. And that's what a good campaign does. They're, they're every day, to your point, you know, adjusting their data. And are we making progress with this particular cohort or not? You adjust your resources, your schedule, your staff, your staff allocation. So you're able to see every day based on the reports you're getting back. So, you know, in a presidential campaign, you're, you're not doing like a, a typical poll where you're talking to 300 people. You're talking to like five, eight, 10,000 people a night in these states. So you've got huge data sets. So you understand what's happening in the race and, and, and to the best extent why. So, and I think that's important for volunteers. Like if you're giving two or three hours of your time, whether it's door knocking, if we can do that or phone calling, and the, and the campaign says, hey, these are people that are registered that we think might not vote. When you actually talk to these people, you'd like that to be confirmed, right? Because otherwise it's like it erodes trust in the campaign. Now, to be clear, no data is going to be perfect. But I think, you know, nobody has time to waste if you're a volunteer. So you want that data to be really good. But data is also after you make decisions. So you're like, well, if we registered this many more people and we got them to turn out at this level and Instead of getting 54% in this suburban swing county, we get 56%. And, you know, we keep the third party number to 4%. Like you put all that together, can we win? That's far more important than polling. So it's how campaigns make decisions, but then it's how campaigns monitor their progress each and every day. And at the end of the day, it's all flowing from what's your win number. How many votes do you need to win in the state, in the congressional district, in the county, in the precinct? And that's what organizers are responsible for. That is the Bible. And, you know, if, if you're responsible for a precinct and you have to get to 220 votes, you're not doing your job unless you know who those 220 votes are coming from down to the individual level. I believe I now have the votes to win the precinct. Uh, and that's the kind of uh, anal, you know, attention that's required uh, to, to build a winning campaign, as you know better than I on the ground. Yeah. And it's it's the blend of that sort of the science of all of that with the art of right. the candidate that can inspire people and create the culture and all those things. And when you have that kind of perfect storm, that's a winning campaign for sure. Um, okay. I want to switch to some of the audience questions that we've received here. Um, so one is Trump is already saying that if Republicans lose, it will be because of voter fraud. How do we counter that? Well, we just beat them and worry about that later. Okay. So <laughs> let's beat them by, you know, the nightmare scenario is actually the electoral college. Well, the nightmare scenario is he wins. But the secondary scenario is the Electoral College remains just as it was in 16. Um, you know, uh, but we win Michigan, Pennsylvania, and you end up roughly at 269, 269. Or sorry, 268, 260. And we're waiting around for Arizona, which, like California, will take weeks to count the vote. Can you imagine that scenario? Yeah. Uh, or even if Trump ends up losing Arizona by three or four points when all the votes are counting, he's going to be screaming voter fraud. So one, let's win by a big enough margin uh, that he just looks like a sore loser. Um, but he's going to do that. He's going to say, I would have won, but for the media, I'm going to, I would have won except for I was spied on. I would have won except for the pandemic. I would have won except for voter fraud. And, you know, I, I wouldn't worry about that. Let's beat him. Okay. Despite what Jared Kushner says, the election by law is happening on November 3rd. Okay. It's happening. We've got to make sure, you know, it's done in a smart way to allow participation. Uh, let's just beat them. Okay. And my dream is actually, uh, I would take getting 270 electoral votes and beating them by this much. But my dream is we do much more than that. Yeah. We beat him badly. He's kind of a disgraced figure. He's never invited to another Republican convention to speak. His businesses go in the absolute toilet, which I think is possibility because people don't want to stay at his properties or deal with them. Like that should be his faith. It is, he wishes he never ran. 
because yes, he was our 45th president, but he's a disgraced figure in his party, in the world, and in the country. That's the dream. The reality is uh, we're going to have to fight for every vote, uh, and he's going to say that, but let's beat him. Uh, and, and um, you know, the reason the election is going to happen is it has to happen on November 3rd, and then the Constitution mandates if there's no presidential election before January 20th, uh, of, in this case, 2021, Pence and Trump cease to hold office. So there's going to be an election, and we just have to win it. Um, and listen, I will, if, if on November 4th, he's tweeting out about voter fraud, he does a press conference about voter fraud and Mike Flynn and the pandemic, I'm just going to sit back and pour bourbon and eat popcorn and love it. Okay, because this is, you know, we're going to watch him, you know, have a hard time coming to grips with losing. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, you know, that should keep us motivated. The thing that should keep us motivated is think about the opposite. Think about it's it's 2 a.m. November 4th Eastern time, 11 o'clock our time here in the Bay Area. And he uh, and Sean Hannity and Ivanka and Jared, you know, stride out into the Trump ballroom and say, thank you, America, for a second term. That'll feel 50 times worse than it did on November 8th, 2016. Uh, and that is still a possibility. Yeah. So you got to keep that in mind. That's the thing that keeps me up is that image uh, is so disturbing. And what would come after? I had Eric Holder on my podcast uh, today. And, you know, it, you know, he reminds us, like, if he gets a second term, um, there's going to be Kavanaugh's all across the country. And there could be two more Kavanaugh's on the Supreme Court. And if we don't beat Donald Trump and the court goes seven two, um, we could win every election in the country for the next twenty years, and there's going to be little on the progress we can make because of the Supreme Court. So, you know, we have to win this election. That'd be motivating, yeah. Um, which is kind of, which kind of leads me to my next question, and maybe you just answered it, but um, a question comes in: How does Biden energize disenchanted voters of color who sat out in the twenty sixteen election? Well, I think when when all is said and done, um, his bigger challenge will be younger voters uh, that are white, African-American, Latino uh, than African-American voters generally. I think yeah. he's always had a good connection with African-American voters. He served as Barack Obama's vice president. Trump uh, is a racist. Um, you know, African-American citizens are getting hurt disproportionately economic and health from the pandemic. Now, you know, Trump's going after Barack Obama in a frontal way. So, uh, but with younger voters, I think that's going to be the challenge. And I think he's going to have to work really hard, utilize his surrogates, make sure he's doing compelling advertising and content to climate change. So, so as you know, Buffy, good campaigns don't treat base voters as people you talk to at the end and with almost a perfunctory campaign. Like, you better treat Latino voters, African-American voters, young voters as persuasion targets and assume that they are at risk of not voting. And 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 so I think the Biden campaign's done some great content recently going after Trump on the pandemic. Uh, they did a great spot last week on, uh, you know, characters revealed in crisis and the difference between him and Trump on empathy and compassion. Great. But we have to see the climate change ads and housing ads and the stuff that reaches younger voters and voters of color um, and, you know, campaign events and surrogate activity. So, uh, you, you know, you, you made a great point about this horribly false and dangerous debate about base versus swing. Yep. The math in battleground states and presidential elections is very simple. There's not enough of either bucket to win. You've got to put it all together and you've got to treat them equally. So uh, the, the Manhattan Project for the Biden campaign, I think, has to be to get his support levels, his vote share and his activism amongst young voters of every ethnicity to the right level. And it's going to be hard. It, it was hard for Barack Obama. 
Right. People assume it just came to us. You know how hard it was. It was brutally hard. Uh, so it's going to be harder for Joe Biden as it was for Hillary Clinton. But th- I think he can do it. But it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of resources, a lot of thought. So um, someone else asks, what is the role of our old boss, Barack Obama, in all of this? And what, what can we kind of anticipate seeing him out there? And what do you think right. about that? Well, listen, I've learned in politics that the value and role of surrogates is vastly overstated, meaning the yeah. way I think about not a normal surrogate. <laughs> no, no, but it's so, so here's what I, he, he's going to be very valuable as on Michelle, but I want to put it this way. Will a swing voter in Wisconsin, a Trump Obama voter, 58 year old iron worker, um, who's going to be, will he be persuaded what Barack Obama says? Probably not. Um, where Barack Obama can be important with swing voters is he can attest to the leadership Joe Biden provided leading the execution of the recovery act, you know, which is the question of the country. How do we dig out of an economic crisis? Barack Obama can say, he was the guy who did it, uh, and he did it in a way that built new economies like the green energy economy, and he focused on the middle class. So he can attest to his suitability for this moment. I think Barack Obama and Michelle Obama can be super effective at uh, you know, using social media. It's very natural to them, reaching young voters, voters of color. But they are not on Broadway in this play. It is Joe Biden. They're off Broadway. So they'll do everything they can. Um, I'm sure they'll give good speeches at the convention, whether that's in person or virtual. They'll do great interviews. They'll do great content. They'll reach out and do conference calls with all the Biden volunteers. They'll do all that. So I don't mean to minimize it, but the reality is uh, this is about Biden and Trump. Even the Biden's vice president, 99% about this is about governing. It's not about the campaign because voters are focused on the top of the ticket. So uh, the Obamas will do everything they can. They can be very helpful. I think in this case, the fact that Obama in every way can speak to Biden's leadership on uh, the last time the country was in an economic crisis is great. But, you know, he's not a superhero in this campaign. No one is. Uh, The only there's two superheroes, all of us and Joe Biden. Yeah. You know, that's the truth. Truth. So uh, someone else asks, do you anticipate any October surprises? And I sort of wonder if this question, it's so different now with Trump because I feel like every day there's an October surprise with him. But any kind of those sort of traditional October surprises, do you anticipate any of that? Well, listen, uh, historically in in 04, it was the bin Laden tape um, that, you know, the Kerry campaign certainly thinks um, hurt them in the closing days. Um, You know, you had in George H.W. Bush's uh, race, uh, some Iran-Contra I remember with Casper Weinberger that, that heard him, although Clinton was headed to a victory there. With Trump, um, I'm not sure an October surprise, uh, to the extent there is one, will deliver the same force because he's trying to create them every day. Uh, so um, um, I'm not sure. I mean, if you're a campaign, you're preparing. The, the big October surprise would be, you know, if the pandemic from a health standpoint um, has abated someone that comes roaring back in October. Well, that would be a very unpleasant surprise, but unpleasant surprise. Uh, you know, would I put it past Trump? to generate some military action somewhere, to try and create a rally around the flag? Of course I wouldn't. He's going to do anything and everything you could ever imagine, like wag the dog, uh, house of cards, West Wing, all the stuff those in poli- those of us who are in politics, you know, look at those shows and say, that's crazy, that would never happen. He'll, anything's on the table with this guy. Um, but, you know, um, I think where the economy stands in October uh, is going to be the big thing. Um uh, and that will be statistics, yes, but how we're all feeling about it. Um, and if projections are true, you know, the unemployment rate could still be north of 10%. And that's just a lot of weight for an incumbent president to drag into a re-election. And not to mention the fact that he's totally responsible for this COVID-19 crisis. And I hope people don't right. 
And the mishandling of that has resulted in the deaths of tens of thousands of people. So there's that. Um, so David Plouffe, if you were running for president, who would be your VP pick? Well, um, so, you know, I, uh, you know, uh, helped lead this process back in 08, um, you know, along with Eric Holder and, and Caroline Kennedy, uh, where we ended up picking Joe Biden. So I have some visibility into this and some sense of how Biden will go about it. So, um, again, this is about uh, the most important factors. There is vetting. OK, and the vetting that happens is much more intrusive than happens in a Senate campaign or a governor's campaign. Okay, health records, medical records, you're looking at family, everything. So there were people, there certainly were for people us in 08 who either didn't want to go through the vet or were disqualified because of the vet. So you start with a list of people, some people drop out because they just are going to be too much of a problem. Okay. But it is about comfort level. So Joe Biden will decide if I win, who will be a source of good counsel? Who will I actually want to spend time with for eight years? Um, who can I give projects to, foreign policy projects, congressional projects, oversight of things like the Recovery Act? So who's competent? Um, uh, and who can do the job if something happens to me? Which, by the way, I'll even say about like George H.W. George Bush didn't pick Cheney because he was like some great political performer. And even Trump didn't pick Pence because he was going to help deliver him a state. I think even Trump understood like there's questions about me. I need to pick like some boring white dude governor who can give people confidence, right? So Biden needs to pick somebody who can do the job if something were to happen to him. That is 90% of this. The 10% of it is um, you don't want, you want somebody who's not going to hurt you in the campaign mm -hmm. because very rarely does a vice presidential pick help you. So what does that mean? What does a vice president do? The most important thing they do is they have one debate with their, in this case, it will be with Pence. So pick somebody you think could do well in that debate. As Joe Biden did for us against both Palin and Paul Ryan, two difficult assignments. They give a speech at the convention and they run around and campaign and do campaign activities, but they're way off Broadway. The only time a vice presidential candidate makes news really is if they make a mistake. So Palin was an exception where she was a meteor for three weeks uh, that was up in the sky and then it flamed to ground. But um, so he, this is the most personal decision Joe Biden will make or any presidential candidate makes. And this is one where Barack Obama was interested in my opinion, but not very much. Like he had to make a decision that he had to live with. Like a gut instinct there, right? Like a reaction of kind of that chemistry, right? Chemistry, competence. Does, did they balance me out in some way? Um, do they have some expertise I don't have? Biden had a lot of foreign policy background and expertise. And that was important to Obama because it was clear when we made that choice, even though it was pre-Lehman Brothers crashing, we are heading into an economic catastrophe. So Obama was going to have to spend a lot more time. It's also the pitch he made to Hillary Clinton to be Secretary of State. Listen, I'm dealing, I'm going to have to deal with the economy. So I need someone like you to represent us on the world stage. Okay, Bluff, so name some names. <laughs> well, I mean, we have so many. It's like uh, uh, a bounty of awesome people, right? So, I'm, you know, Biden's going to obviously look at all the the people that get mentioned, Kamala Harris from out here, Catherine Cortez Masto from Nevada, um, you know, the governor of uh, New Mexico, Val Demings from Florida, Stacey Abrams, uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Tammy Duckworth. I'm going to leave people out, not by design. But, you know, I'm sure we'll also maybe look at some people from business or maybe some people from Congress uh, who we all don't know. So I think he's got a, a, a pretty rich list. My guess is he'll start with a list of 15 or so. And the way it works is you'll get that down to 10 and then down to six and down to the final three. Um, and, you know, he'll at least talk to the final six, probably the final 10, multiple conversations. Uh, and again, I think I think everybody's looking for, could he pick somebody that's going to make it easier for us to win the election? 
Yep. That is not how he's going to make the decision. Um, we want somebody who can not hurt us and maybe they can help us. You know, I hope he picks somebody we're all excited about when he makes the uh, announcement as, as Biden supporters as Democrats. But the most important thing is somebody who's, and this is, we should all care about this because Joe Biden's first term, if he wins, is, is going to be defined and consumed by one of the hardest tasks a president's ever had, which is to dig out of the only thing that rivals this is the Great Depression. This will surpass what he dealt with as Barack Obama's vice president back in 09 and 10. Okay, last question. Most critical. And this came in a couple of different ways. Uh, what can someone from California do to help Biden? How can we get involved? What is the ask? How do we like rally these troops? Where do we send them? Well, first of all, you need to make your own plan. So that starts. So one, am I going to give money to Biden? If so, how much can I afford it? When am I going to give that? Um, uh, uh, I'm going to talk to everybody, my friends and families and colleagues that I know are going to support Biden and ask them if they're going to give. Maybe you can do your own virtual fundraiser. Um, uh, if you're allowed to travel in the fall and you've got the means uh, to drive to uh, Arizona or Nevada, do that. The campaign will probably have buses if we're doing that. If not, volunteer, sign up for the Biden campaign to volunteer, to call and make postcards. Every day, you should be posting content, stuff you see Biden or the campaign doing you like, infographics or videos that make the case against Trump, lies Trump's repeating. You know, you can do that every day and none of that no state lines. If you've got friends in battleground states or family members, ask them what they're doing and apologize. Say, I live in California. You've got an outsized burden in this election. We're counting on you. How can I help you? Yeah. <laughs> so recruit. Um, I had a sister who just moved from Ohio to Florida. So she traded one battleground state for another. So, you know, what is she going to do down there uh, to help? So um, uh, and don't ask, wait to be asked. I mean, you can do all that right now. Uh, and listen, we've got great local candidates like Buffy, members of Congress who are going to be running here in California. So it's okay to help them too. Uh, and we encourage you to do that. But I think a lot of people do want to get in the fight. Yeah. There's great groups like Indivisible uh, and Swing Left. If you're part of, you know, the Sierra Club or Planned Parenthood, they're going to be having, uh, or unions, they're going to be have, uh, activities in the battleground states that you can do remotely. So raise your hand. So social media now, what can you give? Sign up to be a volunteer either through Biden or some of these groups, and also think through what can I do in the fall? How much time can I uh, deploy to this? Uh, but getting in the social media and content game is critically important because, again, they just have an infrastructure advantage that's kind of historic in, in um, uh, nature that we got to fight again. Well, thank you very much, David Clough, and thank you for watching. Thank you for being part of the Commonwealth Club. And if you want more of these programs, please go to commonwealthclub.com slash online. Uh, so those are my parting words. And David, it's good to see you virtually. And I really enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.